We're going to continue our series, Christchurch Escape, looking at the idea of us being authentic people. That we will be people that are true. That we will be people that are honest. That this place will be a place uh, where that can happen. I am... Um, as I watch the news, as I do, the 10 o'clock news, and I sit down to watch the 10 o'clock news, I realize that the editors of these shows have got a really important job on their hands. And these editing meetings must be quite heated debates. They're in a position where, and I'm guessing, they will have a raft of different pictures and images of the story that they're covering that they can choose from. They'll have videos and they'll have pictures, and the debate that they'll have will go along the lines of now, how important a new story is this story? How much do we need to engage the population with this story that's going on? And they have in their power the opportunity to really engage people with a new story by the kind of image that they put out there. Is this just, is this just another war in a part of the world that we don't know about? Is this a war that is significant to us because of its geographical location? Is this a war that is evil and therefore we really need to care about this so we can pick a picture or a short video clip? Do you know, sometimes, I don't know if you ever have this moment where you just about spit out your tea as you're watching the news because they, and they'll say at the start, this might contain some upsetting images, this might be a difficult watch, and you watch something that stays in your head. So I can remember a couple, there was one where there was a wee boy just lied on the beach face down, and he died as he tried to cross the channel. And this thing that had gone from a bit of a concern suddenly became something that I couldn't get out of my head because of the graphic imagery that they put there. Even now, as I describe it to you, I can see the wee boy head in the sand. Graphic imagery. One of one of our God's biggest concerns, and I gauge this by what it says in his word, the Bible, is that his people wouldn't be fakes, that his people would be authentic, that what was happening to them would be real, and that God's people would be real. And God, this is my conviction, and we'll go through the story, is willing to edit in as God's word is breathed out in the Bible, the kind of images that mean that we just can't get away from the idea that we can just drift through this world in an apathetic state, almost pretending, being like a camouflage Christian. We see the images, the people that Jesus meets, the images that God's put in his words, and we are arrested. So what I want to do is just show you that image and it's there in the text, but I don't know if it jumped clear enough off the page. I don't know if you did what I often do as I read through the Bible. You can get the first bit and then you just drift off. In that text, in Luke chapter 7, there is just this image that left. So the Pharisee and his pal who is whispering to their jaws will drop in a second. Let me describe for you the scene. It's at Simon the Pharisee's house, and it's quite a prim and proper affair. It's not Downton Abbey. It's not pride and prejudice. It's not that kind of world. But there is a place for people to sit. There's a seat of honor. There's people that need to be there. There's people that you hope are going to be there. There's the kind of language that you're going to use, things that you're going to talk about. There's people that you don't want to be there that aren't going to be allowed in. 
It's quite a hostile party. Did you notice in the text what Jesus didn't receive? So they wanted this famous rabbi, Jesus, to come. They wanted him there because they wanted to quiz him. But nobody poured oil on his head. Nobody washed his feet. This is just customary stuff. This was going to be an interrogation. This was going to be a serious chat. So it's prim and proper, and it's serious religious debate whilst they're having a meal. It's also, and I quite like this, and I can't quite get my head around this, it's a bit of a spectacle. The living, there's not, I don't imagine there's loads, I don't know, it's not, we, they don't have mobile phones in these times, they don't have big screen TVs or anything like that. You would watch this event happening from the courtyards. People would gather round outside and peer in. They might not be allowed to be in, but they would be observing this prim and proper party. And outside this prim and proper party, there is a woman who is in just absolute dire straits. Her life is just ruined, and she's heard about Jesus. And she's figured out where he is, and she's made her way there, and it's brilliant. This just, I just want you to grab hold of this moment because I don't think God lets us away with it. She bursts into this room. Now, the Bible, I think, quite kindly describes her as a sinful woman. What it's talking about is a woman who's probably a prostitute. Now, if you're a prostitute in a big city today, you're probably still going to get noticed. If you're, and you'll be, your card will be marked and that kind of thing. If you're a prostitute in these times, in these towns, Everybody knows who you are. You're not allowed on the religious ladder. You're not allowed into these kind of events. She carries in with her. So she's, we've, we're already at, I can imagine uh, Simon the Pharisee whispering to his pal, doing that, do you know that sign? When some, that moment when, when somebody that you don't want at the party has arrived, giving it that little, this is going to be bad. Where is security? This woman has broken into the party. The prostitute has got in. And she's, she's about to have a meltdown. She's carrying with her this huge big jar of perfume. She makes her way over to Jesus and she drops it. She opens it up and the room is, this is not, this is the least subtle entrance imaginable. The room just fills with this aroma. And then something happens that would just leave a scandal throughout the town. I mean that everybody's thinking about it forever. She lets down her hair. It wouldn't be a big deal to us, but in these times, this is just a brazen sign. Your hair's covered up, it's hidden out of the way. She lets down her hair, she bursts into tears, and she washes the feet of Jesus. And then there's this incredible moment in the text. I don't know if you've ever seen Snatch or any of the Guy Ritchie stuff. He does this really cool little feature in his films where he does this super slow-mo moment. So the film's banging along and then he zooms right in on a particular moment and you see somebody's facial expressions, just their eyebrows rise up and you know it's a significant moment. The text does that here with this Pharisee. He looks to his pal on, on his right and he says, if, this, if Jesus knew who this person was, and there's this moment... If he knew who this person was, there's no way that this would be happening. His jaws dropped. Jesus is there eating his meal, and his feet are getting washed by the prostitute, the lady that shouldn't be in there. It's an absolute scandal. And Jesus, and I think the text lets us go this far, 
He just lets it happen. And then, until they start whispering, then he defends her in this prim and proper party. Why does he do this? Why do we have this image that we can't shake out of our minds? Even we can't shake it out of our minds. Because Jesus says, and he determines, and he does this at every opportunity. He says, we can't have it that God's people just pretend. We can't have it that this is just an empty thing. It can't be that this is just a ritualistic thing. I want to tell you, Jesus says, in love, that this is a real thing. I want to leave you with the impression that this is real for you. This is where it leaves us this morning, wherever we're at. And I think what happens as a regular churchgoer, you just drift, don't you just end up coming along, you attend, you do the Bible readings and all that kind of stuff. You ebb and, There's the ebb and flow of Christian life. And God, in his wisdom and in his word, through the work of Jesus, interrupts that thinking and he says to us, this is... This should be the place where it's real. This should be the place where you can be really honest about your faith. This should be the place where you can come and like, if it's really tough and there's stuff you don't believe, you can talk about it. This should be the place where you don't come and start pretending. How are you getting on with that? Have you ever done that? This should be the place where you're able to come and drop the pretense. Drop the mask. Be yourself. This should be the place where you're able to come and get more real about your faith with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with God working in and amongst us. And I think one of the pictures that we see in the New Testament is this is a, like a beautiful thing. It's an awesome thing. It's a compelling thing. It's a helpful thing to the Christians that are in the group. But here's the kind of question. How are you getting on with that? How are you getting on with being honest about where you're at? with this faith thing. I'm definitely not going to tell you this week how I'm getting on with this faith thing. I've made a few observations um, as I've watched, and I've been away for a few days, so I don't actually know who's won the conservative leader debate or even if that's been resolved. But up to a point, I watched it and I made a few obs observations about authenticity. One would be that as a nation, we want it. We know that we need it. But the second thing would be, man, this is going to be hard to get. I can't tell you the joy that I had when I realized, and this is not a, I am very much on the political fence as I make this speech. I can't tell you the joy that I had when I realized that our nation as a collective decided that it was important that our leaders had integrity and honesty in, a, in what we define as a post-truth world where we almost look and say, as long as you can deliver it, we'll go along with whatever it is, that our nation went, actually, no. It really matters that what the person says and what the person does marries up. I, I am so relieved that the human race goes, yes, because it's true, isn't it? The world, we can't have that. If that doesn't marry up, we fall apart. First of all, we need that. Second of all, having reached this moment of triumph, as we see that how important it is that we have honesty, is how hard 
it has been for us as a nation and how difficult the process was to replace Boris with people that were going to be honest to see the immediate scrap and fight that people get into. One of the things I would observe is the institution of the House of Commons is essentially, isn't it, it is a democracy. We elect these people on who they are. But as I observe the system, and I observe the system at its core, what it asks of people to prove themselves, to bring something, to earn their place, to show strength, the, the values that are in this institution so high and almost so unhuman how can anybody in this environment manage to be authentic how can anyone manage that the the what the core of this institution that we've got at the top of us that what's required of people to constantly prove that you're better than somebody else to constantly nudge yourself above somebody else at its core it's got this weird it's not just a meritocracy it's kind of a poisoned meritocracy kind of meritocracy's got its place hasn't it it's good that we've got the right people in the right jobs but if that becomes if that's all that it is if you go along to this place and you become institutionalized to that then your soul's ruined and i think what happens what i observe happening Often, as I look at Question Time on a Thursday night when I watch it, it's just almost a wrestle of the ego sometimes. It goes along a journey of democracy to some poisoned meritocracy to some sort of ego wrestling match. And when it comes to that point, how can anyone in the middle of an episode of Question Time stop back and be really honest? How can a... Because these people are human beings. They get up and spill the coffee when they get out of bed like everybody else. How can... How on earth... Can we be honest? My reflections were, as I pour scorn on the House of Commons, that actually loads of our institutions are like this. Loads of our institutions are like this. The ones that the human beings make. They start off as one thing with good intentions. They quickly become about trying to be better than somebody else and they end up just being a wrestling match of their ego. You just think about your place of work all that you hope that it might be, what it actually becomes, what it actually looks like. Think about your school and the playground rules. Think about your social media feeds. Even some of the good institutions that we have, marriage, friendships and family, even these end up becoming ego wrestling matches. One of the things I would say about us as a culture is that we ache in the absence of being able to be honest. We ache for our leaders to be honest. We ache for our places of work, to be honest. We ache for our social media feeds, to be honest, and for us to be honest on them. And we ache to be honest with ourselves. This, that little rant, this is why my conviction is that the gospel, the story about Jesus, the hope that's in Jesus, is not just, we shouldn't just think of it as good news for heaven, that thing that's on layaway after we die, fingers crossed that we end up there. This is why I think it's essential good news for now. It's critical good news for now. Look at what Jesus says to Simon. So these two characters in here, Simon, 
He's institutionalized. He's in the pharisaical system. And he looks at this woman and thinks, she can't ever achieve godliness. It's just not possible. She can't break out of her institution to get into mine. And he looks at his institution and he thinks, all that matters is just that I can prove that I'm a little bit better than other people. And the truth of it is, if Jesus never comes along, if Jesus never walks that way, both these people stay in these institutions and they never get to be honest with themselves. They never get to be honest with themselves before a holy God. Look at what Jesus says. I'll read it out, verse 40 through to 47. To this guy in this institution. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. So see if you can puzzle out as I'm reading it through what Jesus is doing, what he does. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turns towards the woman and says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. She didn't give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. This woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I'm telling you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little Jesus in this little section here pierces both their institutions. He breaks them down. He pulls them apart at the frame. The first thing he does, and I love this, and I've probably only just seen it this time as I've looked into it. He puts them both on a level playing field, quite subtly, and I think there's enough in the text to let us think this. Both of them serve him. The prostitute lady and the religious man. He's eating Simon's food while she's washing his feet. Both of them are serving God. Both of them are interacting with the Holy God. It's awesome stuff, but he goes deeper than that. He reminds both of them in verse 41 and 42 that neither of these people can pay the debt back. Both of them, both of them stand in a position where they're completely outfoxed by this debt. One is 500 denarii, one's 50 denarii. But critically, neither of these people can pay it. And yet, and this is the beautiful bit, both debts are paid. He takes them to the bigger picture of who they are in relation to God, where they stand before a holy, perfect God. And he said, in light of where you stand before a holy, perfect God, both your little institution's rules are rendered completely void. Pointless you getting on your high horse, Simon, about what this woman's done wrong, given how holy God is. It's a little bit like the Titanic ship going down. And there's a guy from the gentry there telling a deckhand about the benefits of being upper class or the privileges associated with being upper class, or, the, or how his way of thinking is better than their way of thinking as the boat goes down. You don't have that conversation. It's pointless as the boat's going down. You look up 
at the life raft, you both have to be honest with yourself about the situation and you grab on to the thing. There's only one way to go in this sense. This is why, the, this is why I think the cross becomes such a critical intervention in human history. Because it's the only thing, in my opinion, that levels us all. It's this beautiful thing that says, none of you are good enough to get here. I'm holy and I'm perfect and I love you in this amazing way. Nobody can get here. You're all massively indebted to this. There's no point picking any morality fight. And yet, the price is paid if you'd only believe it. This is what it does. It pierces our institutions. The fights that we might want to pick. The pressure that we have to feel like we're better than other people. The wrestling matches that we have. As far as I can see, the gospel, the truth of it, is the only thing that flips that around. It tells us, man, there's, there's no other way to go but to be honest and authentic and truthful about how you are. It's the only thing that gets us to look back at ourselves and see us in light of who God is. And this is our calling, the authentic calling. How do we go about doing that? As I've, as I've looked at this, I was aware I was half preaching a sermon that's encouraging everybody, and I had a few of you good people in my mind as I thought about this, to just burst into tears and fall on the floor, like that's the only thing that worship can be. I don't think this passage is teaching us that. This, there's this wonderful story of salvation in which this happens. I think the passage tells us, and God through his word tells us, that we are all called to make our own authentic response. There's a lovely note, and I think, I, I hope, prayerfully I'm reading the text right, that Jesus doesn't dismiss what the kind of, what a Simon kind of person could bring, because he's a religious person. There's a lot of changes Simon's going to have to make. Jesus says, I think very carefully, this person's love is going to be greater. It's going to be different. But it doesn't rule out a different kind of worship. What it points us to is an acknowledgement that the debt has been paid as being the critical thing. We are, we're not all called to be uber-religious people. Praise the Lord. We're not all called to throw our hands in the air and fall on our feet. Praise the Lord. But we are all called, all of us called to make an authentic response to the debt that's been paid for us. This is, this is what God's people are called to be. This is what we feel is an awesome calling for his people. Now, our hope and ambition at Christ Church is wherever we are on that spectrum is that we are nudging ourselves along to looking at that debt that has been paid for us and making a real response to 